Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other wonderful countries from around the world in a casual setting. And today is quite a unique episode because this is the first of our Hispanic Heritage Month series. So uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, particularly in the U.S., is typically held from September 15th to October 15th every year. And, you know, us being all about culture, uh, you know, on the podcast, we decided to interview four different Hispanic voices from the, for the month of October. So it's still going to be like our regular interview process, you know, but uh, specifically targeted towards Hispanic people. So we hope that our listeners can learn a thing or two about the Hispanic culture and maybe we can debunk some of the myths that are out there and things like that. So really eager to have you on the podcast, Elizabeth. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, how do I... Like, how's your day been? Let's start from there. Like, well, what's up? What have you been up to today so far? We're recording this on September 16th, by the way. Yeah, so my day's been pretty busy. I woke up early. I took my son to the track to run. I would typically run with him, but I'm healing from a stress fracture right now. So my running is on hold. But yeah, pretty busy. I did uh, online schooling for a military uh, school that I'm currently doing. So I was basically sitting on my butt all day long, which can be even more exhausting than like running around sometimes because you're just like looking at a computer screen all day long. So yeah, that's pretty much what I did. Yeah. For an active runner, I can imagine sitting on your butt all day. I mean, you are a competitive runner and you've won, I guess, a couple of races. And did your son just, how old is he? Did you just pick up interest in it or you're trying to like get him into the sport? Honestly, he did track last year and it didn't seem like he had liked it. And then this year he started running with me. He's 13. He started running with me and he's good. He like, he'll tell me, he's like, mom, I know you're hurt, but I need to run tomorrow. And then he's like, how many miles are you going to make me run? I'm like six or eight, 10. And he's like, all right, let's do it. And he will get up every single day at 530 in the morning you know, wake up, do his stretches, and he'll go on a run. No complaints whatsoever. At 13? Wow. At 13. Wow, look at that. Yeah. I'm sure he had some of your DNA there. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I really do think so, for sure. Okay, okay. Talk to me about Hispanic Heritage Month. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I just got to find out about HHM this year. I didn't know about it previously. But is it a big thing in the Hispanic community? Is it? I know... A lot of uh, Hispanic nations celebrate their independence, like, you know, in the middle of September, most people maybe at the end of September. But do people really pay a lot of credence to Hispanic Heritage Month in your community? I would say not. So I'm in like the Washington, D.C. community. And I think the most that I've seen here being celebrated is like Dia de los Muertos. And it's a very colorful and very... Sorry, can, you, um, can you say that one more time? Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. Got it. And so it's right after Halloween. Um, so I would say that that's the holiday that I see here, at least in the the DMV area that gets really celebrated. The museum does different activities. They do like mariachi. They bring folklorico, a lot of traditional dances from a lot of like Mexico and uh, South American countries. Um, but to be honest, I would say that it, I don't really see a lot of celebration here in this community from the Hispanic and Latino communities. But I would say that in Mexico, it's probably a bigger deal. I've never been in Mexico to be able to see that celebration, but 
I have seen they'll do like festivals or they'll do like a parade, even in like small towns, small rural towns, they'll go out in the street, you know, they'll barbecue or whatever, but it's not a big deal here in the community that I'm in right now. Yeah, you know what? That makes sense because um, I'm, I'm part of the Black community uh, myself and the celebration of Juneteenth, I think, which is like mm, celebrating mm-hmm. like the abolition of slavery was a pretty big thing down south. So a lot of the southern states, obviously, because that's where slavery uh, slavery thrived, I guess, uh, in the U.S., yeah. uh, had Juneteenth. But a lot of people on the East Coast and some people on the West Coast didn't necessarily know about Juneteenth to the television show Blackish, which was like, I think two years ago, they, they had something on Juneteenth and that's like sparked a conversation. So it's interesting to see how different pockets of like the Hispanic community of like, or like different communities, you know, pay reverence to one celebration over the other, even though uh, a celebration, you know, is on a particular date or a particular month or, or things like that. Um, but you talked about not observing, you know, any kind of uh, celebration for HHM in the country of Mexico, but have you been to Mexico before? I have. I actually grew up in the border of what is El Paso, Texas and Juarez, Mexico. And so my parents actually met in Juarez. They're originally from Chihuahua. And that is where, you know, my mom got pregnant with me. And so I was, I call myself a border baby because it's kind of like a split Yep, it's it's a split living. So we would live in El Paso, but we would commute to Juarez pretty much every weekend. What I would go and of, stay with. Sorry go to cut you short. Uh, what part yeah. of El Paso? Because I know El Paso. There's El Paso, Texas, and El Paso, Mexico. It's well, honestly, okay. So this is the funny thing about El Paso. El Paso is a very, very unique city because it is made up of mostly. Mexicans, I want to say. So it's a very, like, there's almost not a distinction between Juarez and El Paso. You see vendors selling burritos, tacos, um, chicharrones. It's such a mixed culture because, you know, now I think the restrictions on the border are a lot higher. Um, When I lived in El Paso growing up, I could just cross the border. No problem. I didn't need a passport. Yeah, when I was 18, like when I could go by myself without my parents on the weekends, we would go partying, we would go to the clubs, which are called antros. Antros. Yeah, antros. And like, yeah, my favorite one was Esfinge. I don't know if it's there anymore, but, but you would just cross the border. You would walk or drive. And then when you come back, all you had to do was show your ID. And obviously, that's not the case now with, you know, higher restrictions. And now you have to have a passport. Um, so I know living is different, but before it really was just such a submerged culture of like Juarez and El Paso was one. So did you, when you're on the American side, did you spend USD? And when you're on the Mexican side, did you spend like pesos or, or what's the currency? Or was it like just? Honestly, I, I would say that like pesos was obviously harder to use in El Paso, but I would just use dollar bills in Juarez, just pay with dollar bills and it counts just as pesos. Yeah. Interesting. And what was fascinating about these anthros, these clubs? Like, was it the music? Was it the people, the food? What What did you guys do there? Um, well, it was it was everything. Obviously, the culture, the dancing. It's a completely different atmosphere. And then what made it attractive, I think, at that point in my life was drinking age there is 18. So we oh, would go to the... Uh, yeah, exactly. Smart, so you would go to the smart. club... It, well, I don't know if that's smart. I wouldn't encourage it now. Yeah, I mean, now, just obviously. in case your son is listening to this. This was yeah. a long time ago. It was a long time ago. You have to wait ago. till 21. <laughs> yes, wait. I, we actually, he just did that class yesterday, actually, um, for his health class. But yeah, so 18, we would go party and 
yeah, drink, which, you know, was legal there while I was on the other side of the border. So well, we, we can just say drink water. She drank a lot of water. <laughs> El Paso side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, so you went back and forth between El Paso and uh, Juarez in Mexico. But um, from what I understand, your, your mom was actually undocumented. Like, how was that um, situation like, like giving being born on a, a border town like how was it like when you were born like uh, the hospital or something like like what happened? so I think the situation for her was a lot harder as I started growing up our situation obviously got better my dad was able to provide a very good life for us but I think when I was an infant my mother definitely had a very hard time with crossing the border and having you know trying to find a job on the American side not being able to find jobs because obviously she was undocumented and then going back to Juarez. And so when I was an infant, I know she went back and forth a lot. Um, and when I was, when I was born, she was actually going back to Juarez. So she was kind of like in that middle ground on the border and, you know, she started having complications and she called my dad and he came to get her on the American side. She was still on the American side. So that was a difficult, the little that I know of that story that she shared with me, it was very difficult because she, like I said, she was having complications. So she needed to be seen immediately. No insurance, undocumented, about to have a baby. Thankfully at the time, and I tried to, to ask my mom today what the name of the clinic was. They don't exist anymore, but it was, um, it was a clinic that existed in El Paso that was accessible to undocumented uh, women that were giving birth on the American side. And so that's where she was taken. My dad had to pay upfront cash. You know, he somehow found the money so that my mom would be seen. But yeah, that was a very difficult situation of, you know, no insurance, undocumented. Where am I going to have my baby? And, you know, she's having complications and like bleeding out. So thankfully, my dad was able to find that clinic, get the money. And yeah, so that was tough on her. Obviously, I was an infant. I can't really speak for her experience, but I know that she she says it was very difficult. Well, I can only imagine, like you know, right from coming into this world, you know, being born in a border town, you you would have pretty much like from the very beginning been exposed to, to to the two divides, like Mexico on one side, getting your mom going back and forth, your dad being in the U.S., you know, on that side. How was it like? I know you said like pretty much everyone in El Paso where you stayed was pretty much Latino or Hispanic, but did you get a sense of like when did you start getting to assimilate like American culture or something like that? Like growing up as a kid? When I started school. So growing up, we weren't allowed to speak English. I had older siblings. All of my brothers and sisters were born in Juarez. Um, I was the fifth child born. No, sorry, the sixth child born. And I was the first one born the, on the U.S. side. And then my little sister was also born on the U.S. side. My older brothers and sisters were born in Juarez. Uh, my dad was able to eventually uh, give them citizenship. And so they spoke English because they started going to school uh, in America. And so they learned English and they weren't allowed to speak English in the, in the home because my mom didn't speak English. My dad could understand it and he could, you know, exchange a couple sentences here and there, but no English in the household. So when I went to school, that, so that was, was when... Par- that was your parents, right? Yes, they my parents. No English in the household, got it. Yeah, no English in the household because my mom couldn't understand. Um, so... The first time that I was that I really saw the American culture and that I was exposed to it was when I went to school. And 
I had to learn English. And so that was a little bit difficult. Um, all the Spanish speaking kids that didn't speak English, they were put in like a special program. So there's almost like a, a different, you know, the kids that already know English are in different classes. And then all the Spanish speaking kids are in a separate, and then they would call us the Spanish, Spanish speaking kids. That's so what they Spanish called us. Spanish speaking kids. Yeah. So they're already making you feel like you're different. You're like another. Um, so, so that was unique for sure. It's funny because, you know, having a bilingual ability in today's world is, is pretty much an advantage just so exactly. ki- kids probably didn't know any better. And just because mm-hmm. uh, you weren't hem- homogenous to their culture, you just felt you were different in some way. But this school was in El Paso, correct? Yes. Uh, was there a pivotal point, like having, you know, growing around, you know, being in the Hispanic culture to experience one particular part of American culture that just like kind of like was so different to you, but not necessarily blew you away. Maybe like the first time you saw Michael Jackson or something like, oh, what's this? You know, that kind of thing. Was there a particular culture on the American side that you could pinpoint to say, oh, I was eight years old and I remember that particular thing? Honestly, no. And like I said, I'm in a very unique situation that El Paso is a very Latino dense community. So I was growing around, growing up around people that were like me. So you can go to any store, any business, somebody's going to speak Spanish. I actually just, uh, me and my husband, we just got stationed there prior to coming here to the DMV area. And he's from Puerto Rico and he had never experienced, I'm like, you need to be ready everywhere you go. People speak Spanish. Like you're going to be astonished. It's like kind of being like a Puerto Rico, right? Everybody speaks English and Spanish. And he was in shock. He's like, I've never experienced this in the United States. Like everyone speaks Spanish pretty much. And so that's why it's unique that like, I didn't ever get like a big shock of American culture because everybody was like us. You can go to any store in the morning for breakfast and you can order menudo and pan blanco and burritos, tacos. Like the culture is just very uh, Latino. I like the way you're using like the Hispanic accents pronounced as the burrito, like an average American call it a burrito, or according burrito. to uh, Hillary Clinton, burrito. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Talk yeah. to me about some like your Mexican culture growing up. Obviously, your your mom it was important to your parents that you guys understood and spoke Spanish in the households. What were some of the cultures that or practices uh, that you were exposed to as a kid? Um, obviously, you know, you talked about the Day of the Dead, which is, you know, pretty popular, but were there other things that you could pinpoint that were kind of like fascinating to you? And did you get to teach some of those things to your non-Hispanic or non-Latino friends, you know, sometime uh, when you grew up? Mm -hmm. So yes, definitely. El Dia de los Muertos is a big deal in our family. I grew up in a very traditional Latino family where religion is a very big thing. Uh, Unlike a lot of uh, Mexicans, well, I would say, I don't, I don't want to speak for, for all Mexicans, but I know that in the Latino culture, Catholic religion is very, you know, probably prominent. Um, we can, we grew up just Christian, non-dominational, uh, is that what it's called? Yeah, there you go. Um, so very religious, go to church every Sunday, sometimes on Wednesdays and Tuesdays, the fasting. We went to a church where we couldn't wear pants. You had to wear long skirts and oh, cover your a, head. That sounds familiar, Nigerian culture. Yeah. <laughs> go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The women cover their head, especially if you're praying. Um, so it was very traditional, like as far as like religion is a big thing in the family. Um, my family was also very... 
uh, old fashioned. So my dad is, he became a father like older in age to me. So right now I believe my dad's like 76. So he grew up in Mexico in a very rigid, strict household. So that's kind of how he ran our household. So the man is the head of the house. Mm. You know, he managed all finances, what gets spent, what doesn't get spent. So in those terms, it was very traditional to what you would see in a household from like the 1940s and 1950s in Mexico. Is that like popular among, I know during his time, but maybe now, like, is that still common now? Because from an outsider perspective, looking in, like, when I look like a traditional Mexican household, like the women run shit, like, it's just like, the women make sure the family is good, like they run the household, like, you can go like days on end without even like seeing the father, maybe he's out working, that kind of thing, and the women kind of like hold it down, like in the house. Would you say it's still common for the dads in Mexican households kind of like run things, or that just depends on the family kind of thing? I think it probably depends on the family, but it's probably that way in Mexico. I think the man is still considered the head of the household. I'm not going to say 100% of families, but I think the majority would say that the man is still viewed as the man of the household. He's the one that makes, you know, brings in, supports the family, brings in the money, does all of that stuff. The disciplining of the children. And then the wife is cooks, cleans. It's still like those social and gender norms are still there, even though it's changing, especially in the United States with millennials. Like I fall in the millennial generation and we're changing things. Um, in Mexico, I would still say it's very traditional. But even even as progressive as I want to say that I am, and I'm a feminist, and I'm in the army too, and my husband's in the army, and it's fifty fifty. You know, we're this is a two headed snake, if you want to say. There's two heads in the household here. Um, there's still like those gender expectations of like I'm the one that cooks, I'm the one that cleans. You know, I'm kind of the one that makes sure the kids have clothes and they get fed and their homework's done there's still a lot of those gender norms there for sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, you're from Mexico, your, your husband is from Puerto Rico. Both mm-hmm. of you are in the military. Like uh, my dad was in the Nigerian Air Force. So mm-hmm. I can tell when one parent is in the military, how much more both parents. Is there a story there? Like, how'd you guys meet? Like, what was that like, you know, both of you being in uh, the same service? Uh, I mm-hmm. think it's called the branch, the same branch of the military. Yeah, so we're both in the Army. We met in airborne school um, 15 years ago. Yeah, 15 years ago now. So uh, after you go to your school for whatever job you're going to have in the Army, you can go to like specialty schools. And we both just happen to go to airborne school, which is pretty much your paratrooper and you jump out of airplanes for... It's really just for like historic significance. I don't see us jumping into any war zones anytime soon, but we were at airborne school and he actually caught my eye because he never listened to what the (laughs) instructor said. And I would always be like, who the hell is this guy? Like he's never listening. What do you mean mean don't listen? So if they say everyone in this unit should do a task, he'll be the one to falter that guy. No, like they'd be like, everybody form up. And then he'd like be walking really casually. <laughs> like, and I'm sweating, running, you know, like very like strict. And he's just taking his time. Later on, I found out, well, he wasn't really phased by it because his dad was actually in the army too. He was a paratrooper, jumped out of it. So nothing was new to him. For me, it was all new. So I was, you know, standing sharp, everything perfect, afraid of, you know, making any mistakes. So that's how he caught my attention. Then we just became friends and, you know, ended so up what, being... what was your first interaction like? Like who approached who? That kind of thing. 
Um, I don't remember our first interaction. Um, but I just remember we became friends and we got stationed in the same place, which is Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That's the home of the 82nd. So like, that's where the majority of the people that jump out of airplanes, paratroopers, that's where they go is Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And, um, I didn't have a car at the time, but he did cause his parents were there. So they lend him a car. And so he would give me rides here and there to like buy boots and buy uniforms, get things like that. And then we just became, you know, best friends. One thing led to another. Boom, we're married, you know. Nice, nice. I love the army language that boom, but I'm like very direct. Let me ask you this. So um, like I, I can imagine like to a certain extent, like uh, Hispanic population are fairly well represented in the United States military, maybe something like 20%, if I want to like estimate it, but I'm not sure if that number is the same for like women. I haven't like done any, looked anything up in that case, but during your training, like in airborne school, did you find that you were, you know, one of the very handful of women, particularly in a school that is that physically intense, like jumping out of airplanes, that kind of thing? And uh, how did you, how did your fellow Hispanic guys on base kind of like throw their arms around you, accept you, that kind of thing? I think that if you looked at the demographics or the percentages of women in the military, you're probably going to find that there's obviously less. They're definitely outnumbered by men. But I wouldn't say that I was a handful. Um, At the time, ranger school and a lot of the most uh, physically demanding jobs weren't available for women when I came into the army. Now they are. So, you know, women made the news a couple of years ago being the first women to go through ranger school. That was like unheard of when I came into the army. A ranger men. school, is this like marksmanship that like... No, ranger school is, it's it's a type of elite soldier that's in the army. I don't know how to explain it to you, but um, it's a very demanding and grueling school that was only available to men. Airborne school has been open to women, I mean, as long as I've been in. So that's been a while. And obviously there was less women than men, but I think that we're really well represented. And now we're even more well represented because they're opening up um, positions to women that were generally only for men. Got it. Got it. Okay. And you've been in like active duty military for like 10 years. Like you went to places like Afghanistan, Kuwait, mm-hmm. like how, how was that? Like how, how long were you, how long was your tour in Afghanistan? My tour in Afghanistan was nine months and Kuwait was nine months, I believe as well. Um, so Afghanistan was a little bit more challenging because I just had my daughter. She was four months old and I was the platoon leader for a transportation company. And so it was very important for me to deploy with my soldiers. I did not want to be, um, I just didn't want to be left behind. I wanted to be there with them, you know, leading them. So it was very important for me to deploy. So I did request that they deploy me early. At the time, I I know things have changed now, but at the time it was six months before you could get deployed. I requested for them to deploy me early at four months. My daughter was four months, uh, four months old. Um, So I deployed and then I became the executive officer, which is pretty much just the person underneath the commander, kind of, you know, his right hand, if you want to, you know, put a term to it. Um, it was a unique experience. It was hard, obviously, being away from my family, but you're so busy there. You can't really, there's no time to really think about it. There's no time to get sad. You know, you're leading your soldiers. It no was a lot. No time of to get sad. That's an army thing to say. <laughs> yeah, there was real, no, but there really wasn't. You know, you had, I mean, we had convoys 
So I, I was, I'm in, a logi- in logistics and I was in a transportation company. So my soldiers were responsible for transporting goods, I mean, through the roughest terrain in Afghanistan. And we're talking about mission. You know, they'd come back, maybe sleep for six hours. And guess what? We got we to gotta go on another mission. So it was really hectic. And you, you got to keep your head straight, especially as a leader. I was, a, you know, the executive officer. And... You know, how strong was your, uh, I don't know, do I call it platoon or your group? Like how, how many men? It was a company, I would say, um, probably like a hundred soldiers in that, in that company. But obviously you're part of a, of a bigger, a bigger element. You're part of a battalion and then there's a brigade. And so, yeah, but my company in particular, that's around a hundred soldiers, I would say. That's very interesting. Like you being this executive officer and, you know, caring for your men enough. I know the army kind of like, you know, has this unity, this brotherhood, sisterhood, um, you know, camaraderie kind of thing. And you requested to be deployed early. Do you think like, is it possible to, is it fair to like draw a parallel between your heritage and that? Because when I look at like um, Hispanic people, Mexicans, you know, people from other Hispanic nations, like there's this sense of like family, togetherness, community, everything is done together, whether that be religion or social activities. So you grew up not being, you know, being familiar with the dynamics of your unit, that kind of thing. Did that kind of like help you in your military kind of like aspirations and like being the executive officer or like leading the company or something? Um, I, I think that definitely plays a role of togetherness and family and all those values that we grew up learning. I mean, in my household, at least. Um, another thing I, I think plays a role in the way that I am or the way that I think about things, especially being in the military is that I'm offered opportunities that my parents didn't have. My mother was extremely poor. She lived in extreme poverty. I think she got, I think maybe she finished sixth grade and that was it. Um, So to have the opportunity to be in the military, be offered a lot of opportunities that my parents wouldn't even dream about. I think like if my mom met me and when she was a child and met me now, like who I am, she'd probably think I'm like, a billionaire or something because it's just such a disparity of how she grew up and I'm just normal middle class American, you know? So there was always that pressure of, okay, I'm going to do something good because my parents came to this country and to not succeed after everything they've done. I mean, there was days where I would wake up in the morning. I, I, I kid you not when I was in fifth grade and my parents were still not home from work. I had to like get ready by myself, walk home. I mean, walk to school. And then when I got off of school, they still weren't home from work, working multiple jobs, multiple jobs. My mom would sleep in the car. She said she would sleep in the, in the car after her first job for like an hour and then go into her second job. Wow. That's insane. So I think that plays more role of like why I am the way that I am is just because of that. Yeah, the work ethic like is insane, obviously, like in the Hispanic community and a lot of immigrant communities uh, kind of like out there. How much do Hispanic parents like allow their children like pursue their own dreams? Like, do they like, do you see that a lot of Hispanic families kind of like put an impression on their kids that, hey, you know, kind of like you have to do the, I don't know, maybe like Asians, like, you know, you have to do the doctor lawyer thing or you have to do this. You can't bring disgrace upon our name, you know, that kind of thing. Or it's more like laser fair. You know what? Just uh, be you, do you, take care of your family, that kind of thing. Which of it would you say leans more to? 
I think it's a middle a ground, at least for my family. There was definitely an expectation that I would go to college and that I would, you know, do something with my life. I don't think they expected me to be a doctor. Probably my dad wished I was a doctor, or a lawyer. It's those jobs that, you know, your parents are like, oh, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. I think they just wanted me to be a good woman with good morals and character and definitely go to college. So I'm the first of seven to, you know, get a bachelor's and, you know, let alone a master's. So there's definitely expectations, even with my kids. I mean, I'm already telling them you better go to college. I don't care what you study. You can study music if that's what you like. If you want to study dance, ballet, whatever, but you're going, you're going to take advantage of this country offering you an education. Yeah. You got to pay for it. Hey, if I got to work 10 jobs to pay for it, I'll do so. But you know, you look at these countries where women can't even go to college. They can't even go to school. I mean, things are changing in a lot of countries like Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, but to have the opportunity to go to college and not go, or even a technical school, because you don't have to go to university. If you have a job or a, a skill that you want to, you know, get good at, there's so many technical schools you could go to, but do something, you know? Yeah. Most, most immigrants tend to recognize like education as kind of like the fastest way, kind of like up the ladder and, you know, the mm-hmm. social circles or things like that. So they tend to like take advantage of that as much as, you know, they possibly can. Um, let me ask you this. Is, is there a thing like in your opinion, because I've, I've heard it kind of like in certain circles where people say, um, no, I'm not, I'm not Hispanic. I'm Latino. I'm not Latino. I'm Hispanic. They try to like make that distinction to say, okay, you know what? We're Latinos. We're from South America. And there's kind of like some friction, maybe because of colonization between uh, yeah. some Latino countries and, you know, Spain and things Spain. like that. Mm-hmm. Is that. Is that still a thing like in, in your community? I think it's become a thing in the last, I want to say like five years is when I've really heard the distinction between being Hispanic and being Latino. So when I grew up, I think I would just say I'm like Hispanic or I would really say I'm Chicana. So Chicana Chicana is first, first generation Mexican American. So my parents are from Mexico. I'm the first, you know, to grow up here in the United States. So I would say I'm a Chicana. That was the one thing I would always say. Now I see a lot of debate from the Hispanic, which is, I think, leans more towards the colonization of Spain. And so people want to say Latino, Latina, or Latinx. So I think I go more towards Latino, Latinx than Hispanic or Chicana. That's really what I, to the core, I'm a Chicana. But what about your husband? Your husband is from Puerto Rico, right? Like, mm-hmm. is there a thing between, I might be wrong here and correct me, like, is it Puerto Rico and the, the Dominican Republic? No? Or it's... it's uh, Two different, different places, two different places, but there's definitely a lot of Dominicans in Puerto Rico and a lot of Puerto Ricans in the Dominican Republic. So, and you can find a lot of them playing baseball, so... <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, and they have a lot of similar foods. And, I mean, if you if you're not really well-versed in you know, los puertorriqueños y los dominicanos, you can really get confused as to, are you Puerto Rican or are you Dominican? But I, I can tell now, now that I've been with the Puerto Riqueño and his family, and I've been to Puerto Rico a whole bunch of times, you know, I know, but does, just does from that, the different lingo and different words they use. Does that kind of piss you off in a way? Like sometimes when people just generalize, you know, uh, people like 
might might see, uh, you know, Americans tend to do it a lot, just spoof people. They'll say, oh, I'm not Chinese, I'm Japanese. They're like, yeah, whatever is the same thing kind of thing. Um, does that kind of like piss you off? Even though I know Americans are familiar with Mexico because it's just, you know, right there uh, a lot of the time. But I can imagine that they still make like some of those mistakes. Like what, what are some of the common like misconceptions that you wish uh, people stop doing, not just Americans, just people are not part of your culture generally? Um, I think it's what you said. They, they lump all Latinos in one, in one big ball. And yes, we're all Latinos, but everybody has their own culture and it needs to be recognized, honored, because there's so many beautiful elements to each, to each culture. So I'm Mexican, my husband's Puerto Rican, and he has elements in his culture that have been from the Caribbean. It, you know, um, there's a lot of Afro influence in Puerto Rico as well. So it's, there's elements that I wouldn't necessarily you know, having the Mexican culture and they're so beautiful and unique and you can't really mix it in. He's actually been asked if he's Mexican and I don't think he gets upset, but it it almost speaks to where you're talking about is, okay, everybody's Mexican. There's so many other cultures, so many other Latinos out there, Cubans, Dominican. I mean, we can make, we could make a, you know, big list of them and they all have very distinct, you know, characteristics to their culture. So yeah, that's just the misconception. Everybody's Mexican, I guess. I mean, speaking of Cubans, I remember when my, my brother went to Miami for his honeymoon and he said, like, he didn't know that there were a lot of Afro-Latinos, like, particularly in countries like Cuban. And he saw a lot of Cubans who were, like, physically, like, they were black. They looked black. Yes. And I'm sure, like, a lot of people in Brazil as well, uh, kind yep. of Afro-Latinos and a bunch of other countries, which I guess, like, for me, just to find this out, like, what, two, three years ago, I, I'm sure, like, a lot of people aren't familiar that, you know, they're also like different you know, skin tones and you know, just to emphasize like the different cultures and things. Um, is Mexico kind of like one homogeneous cultures? I know everyone kind of like speaks Spanish, but how is the country divided? Like within the 32 states, do you have like certain regions that do things a little bit differently, maybe in the North, absolutely. South, East, West, that kind of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to travel through Mexico, but that's definitely something I want to do before I die. It's so diverse. So you're, you're talking about such a big country that yes, a lot of people do speak Spanish, but there's so many dialects. There's so many indigenous people that are, are in Mexico that, you know, I think that's where the education lacks, even in the United States, because we're so um, focused inward as Americans. And so like my son, I look at, you know, his geography class or his history class, and there's so much information lacking. Even uh, Native American, uh, you know, education is lacking in the United States. So I think that's where the misconception is, is that Mexico, everybody speaks Spanish. We all look the same. I look like I'm like European or like I'm white, right? But there's so many different, I mean, you can find black people in Mexico that have been, you know, indigenous and different types of indigenous um, people. Like, obviously I'm not educated in telling you all the names, but different dialect. I mean, it's so diverse and it, you know, that's where the education lacks that everybody looks the same or when all the immigrants were coming, oh, they're all coming from Mexico where they're all coming, they all, they want to lump us all together, but there's just so much diversity in the Latino, in the community. It needs to, like I said, it needs to be recognized, acknowledged, honored, and, you know, people need to get educated for sure. 
Most definitely, most definitely. I mean, the United States education system is so, I don't know, man. It's lacking. <laughs> I, it's I don't lacking. know what to call it. Like you have the same textbook, uh, but the contents of that textbook is different in New York than it is in Georgia. The same textbook, same authors, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Like some states actually go as far as like putting out legislation that, that forces book publishers to have like certain things in their curriculums to, to make sure that, you know, um, students learn a particular uh, side to the history and not necessarily everything. But that's pretty interesting. You're talk, talking about Mexican dialects, like what's one popular word that you say, and you're still going to teach me a little bit of Spanish like in, in a short while, but what's one popular word you would you say uh, is pronounced differently in different dialects, maybe a common word that a lot of people can associate with? Hmm, that's a hard one. I could tell you that that being married to a Puerto Rican, the di- the the things that we call uh, are different. So, like growing up, grass for me was sacate. For sacate? him, uh huh. For okay. Puerto Ricans, it's grama. Grama, or, oh, that's so different, right? <laughs> that's totally different. It's completely different. Uh, did, did, strong, wait, let me ask you one question. Does yeah. grama mean something else in your dialect? No. Because that would be no. funny. Like, if it means something else, then you no, think no. you're talking about something else, you know? No, but it does happen between, like, um, people from Spain. I forgot what word it was. I'm not going to say it on here because it could be, it, it could, it's a bad word. But in Puerto Rico, it means one thing. And in Spain, it, it means a completely different thing. And it's still Spanish, right? So I think that's where, like, the funny thing was when you talk to other people and they just call, you know, items different things. Like, I call a straw a popote. And he calls it a a sorbeto. Porpote and sorbeto. Yeah. So it's just weird little things. And the Ah. funny thing is now I call them the Puerto Rican names. Isn't that weird? So like I he mean, completely you've been changed married for a while. Yeah. I'm, well, yeah. How about your kids? I'm, I guess your kids are getting like the best of both worlds. Oh, they get the best of both worlds. So they go to my parents' house and so they eat, you know, the Mexican food, las enchiladas, the el mole and all that stuff. And then they go to abuela's house, you know, the Puerto Rican grandma and they get arroz con habichuelas and the pork. They do the, the pernil is a big thing for Puerto Ricans. They do like a pork and then, you know, they, rotated and all that stuff it's mm. yeah so it's interesting I mean, yeah hispanic food is so good let me just put this out there like yeah. obviously like yeah. like you know the the mex even down to the food trucks like they're so good like i enjoy uh hispanic food a, a lot uh what is one thing like for people who have not necessarily been exposed because this podcast has been listened to like in different areas of the world what's one low-hanging fruits uh coming to mexican food you you advise people to try if they're in part of the world that they happen to find Mexican food or they happen to walk into a Mexican restaurant, kind of like first time kind of thing. So first time, uh, I would say probably maybe a barbacoa. So tacos de barbacoa, or um, if they kind of like a little bit more spicy stuff, like a nice spicy mole with white rice. And so mole is like very traditional. It has like a, a, a long history in Mexican culture, like, and it comes from in, the indigenous people and it's very delicious. What else? I don't and a know. a lot of, like, is taco, like, originally made from corn flour, right? Yes, like the, corn. Yeah. Yep, corn. And that's kind of, like, similar because when I had pupusas, that was also, like, corn flour, but that's more El Salvadorian, Yeah. Yeah, uh, and they're so good though. They're well, so they good. Are. Yeah. <laughs> they are. I used mm-hmm. to say, like, no, I'm Nigerian, so a lot of our dishes uh, have a high spice level. But whenever I eat like Mexican food, particular Mexican food or like Indian food, like 
I can say like the spice level is kind of like up there, if not like above like the Nigerian spice level. So I'm more or less the same home. or more? Uh, it depends. So Indian food is kind of like a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, but Mex- Mexican food I would say is kind of like the same for most Nigerian yeah. foods. I would say depends on oh, part of the country you come from. So I kind of like just felt right at home, like, digging nice. Through, like, Mexican food and, and even like when I used to live in DC I would go to like uh, the Hispanic store to like shop because sometimes when you don't find things in like Safeway or whatnot like you find some things like you no know, plantains and all those things you're used to back home in the Hispanic store so it just goes to show that you know everyone is still connected you know we still have like our unique cultures and all, all that and you know the that's the purpose of the podcast like to expose people to all these different cultures and you know hopefully people get to learn you know about you know some of these things and just to get to see that we're not so different you know as human beings no um, we're not yeah but speaking about learning let, let's do a little bit of you know Spanish one-on-one, like... <laughs> oh, no, you're going to put me in the hot seat. Okay. I mean, I know a little bit. Uh, mi nombre es, uh, uh, you know, hola, como estas? Mi nombre, mi nombre es Nosa. Yeah. Uh, let me see, how do I how do I chat up a girl in Spanish? Uh, <laughs> hey, como estas? I think that's, that's a polite way That's a good opening up, yeah. <laughs> como estas? How are you? Yeah, but how do I, like, well, what else What else would I say? Like, if I say a beautiful girl on the road, kind of like that one, chat up in Spanish. I know she's Hispanic, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe, ¿de dónde eres? Where are you from? Say that de, one more time. ¿De dónde? ¿De dónde? Eres. ¿De dónde eres? Uh-huh. Where like, are you Like, just from? where are you from? And then she'll probably tell you, whatever. And then, um, like, if you want to say, like, what do you like to do? ¿Qué te gusta hacer? ¿Qué? ¿Qué? ¿Qué te, ¿Qué te gusta hacer? ¿Qué te gusta hacer? Mm-hmm. What do you mm-hmm. like to do? And then she'll okay. be like, I don't know, shopping. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Is that the first thing that usually comes out? <laughs> uh, ir de compras. I don't know. You know, don't know. It's, it's funny, like, uh, being from the other side of the world, West Africa, Nigeria, like, we were exposed to Hispanic cultures through telenovelas. Oh, my God. Nigerian oh my women God, and... Yes. Nigerian women and telenovelas, my God, like Telemundo, all that, like Televista, we had all those channels mm-hmm. in Nigeria, like uh, Maria de Los Angeles, uh, like, I don't know how popular they were in yeah. Latin America, but like Maria de Los Angeles, The Gardener's Daughter, Secrets of the Sand, like they'll transcribe all those things and Nigerian women who watch for this, you think it was like the Champions League. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, that but, is the same thing in our households. Then in novelas, really? like you couldn't even watch TV. So like <laughs> you already knew when you got home from school, like your mom made you whatever food and then you could watch maybe 30 minutes. Six, seven o'clock came where the, the novelas came out. Okay, mm. that's it. Maria de lo, del, del Barrio and I don't even know. Yeah, muchachitas and your grandma and your mom are just sitting there watching TV and that's it. You're not going to touch the, the TV the rest the of the TV. night. Yeah, it's is that, done. Is that, do you guys also use that? I know probably in your, uh, you know, your, your mom or your grandmom's house, like that's constantly playing, but you also use like popular media like that, like Hispanic media to expose your kids to like their heritage. Like I understand they interact with family, but you also kind of like use media in a way to let them be around uh, not just like English media, but like Hispanic media, so they understand like kind of like bits and pieces of where they come from. Kind of thing. Um, they, they aren't exposed as much to media, I would say, because we just don't watch a lot of TV. But what they do, what they are exposed to is music. Music is such a big part of our life in 
like, so I grew up, my dad was always listening to records, singing. My dad has like a voice, like uh, a lot of the listeners will know who this is, Vicente Fernandez. My Vicente dad has Fernandez? A, Fernandez. Mm-hmm. Fernandez, okay. My dad has a voice like that. So he could have been like a famous singer, okay? He knows how to wow. sing those Mexican songs. And so I grew up just like sitting next to him and him like basically like literally just doing karaoke by himself, like just singing in the house. <laughs> nice. And so our kids have grown up underneath the same thing. Like my son listens to salsa. That's his favorite. And obviously that's from the Puerto Rican side. Um, his dad and his pops. Uh, For a 13 year old, I think he listens to like Bad Bunny or like hip hop or something. Like, he does listen to that, but he'll, he's all about the salsa and he knows how to dance salsa too. Nice. My daughter, nice. um, yeah, she likes salsa, you know, she's, she's more into like the American pop music, but they're definitely very exposed to the Latino music, both from the Mexican and Puerto Rican side. Yeah. I mean, Hispanic music, Latino music in general is just like that. That's heavy back home. Like a lot of Afrobeats, Nigerian music use that as well. And, you know, we're starting to see a lot of collaboration between like Afrobeats artists and Hispanic artists as well, you know, particularly like on the hip hop side, like Bad Bunny and, uh, you know, Luis Fonzi, I think, has done a couple yeah. of songs with some Afrobeat artists and things like that. Uh, we just hope well, to I see more and more. Well, I think that Latino music, and I want to say like mostly the Caribbean music, is very influenced by Afrobeats. I'm going to say that a lot of the culture is influenced. You know, there has to be a lot of recognition about that, a lot of influence for sure. Got it, got it. Man. Like reggaeton, come on, you know? Oh, yeah, don't even go there. Yeah. <laughs> reggaeton is something else. Like, what was, I'm not sure, what country was, uh, no, I think it was probably Jamaican, so that's not necessarily Latino. Kevin Kevin Little was probably Jamaican, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, what's, what's his, oh, most of those guys were probably like Jamaican, Barbadorian, something like that. But yeah, a lot of like Latino music also is like pretty huge. Uh, well, where we come from. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a few questions about like Mexico in particular, just for the benefits of our listeners to be a little more deliberate about, you know, learning about, you know, culture and where you're from. Yeah, of course. So when I hear like Cinco de Mayo, like I automatically think like it's the Mexican Independence Day. Am I wrong for thinking that? Is it the same as Mexican Independence, like se- September 16th, like Cinco de Mayo or September 15th? Kind of thing or no? no, so Cinco de Mayo actually is 50 years after the independence of Mexico. So obviously the Mexico oh. gained its independence from Spain. Mm. And 50 years later, that's when the actual Cinco de Mayo happened that everybody celebrates. So it's not the same. It's not the same thing. Cinco de Mayo was the battle that was won in Puebla. And the independence was obviously the independence from Spain. So what, what's usually done to, you know, commiserate like Cinco de Mayo uh, typically in a uh, Mexican community? Oh, my God. I think Cinco de Mayo is probably celebrated in the United States more than it is in Mexico, to be honest <laughs> oh, with really? you. I think, <laughs> oh, yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. So, I mean, I have family. Obviously, I have a lot of family that lives in Mexico and they don't go all out in Cinco de Mayo. But then you look at the Latinos here in the United States and it's kind of like you're they're really going out. You know, so it's kind of it's kind of unique and fascinating to actually think of that of Latinos here in the United States. And it kind of it's nostalgic, no, it kind of celebrating those type of traditions and holidays kind of brings you a little bit closer to your heritage. So 
when, when we do Cinco de Mayo here, I make sure that the kids know that, you know, we're not just partying and barbecuing and what is it? What are we celebrating? You know, what does it mean to our family, at least for the Mexican side? When we celebrate Dia de los Muertos, yeah, it's fun. It's, you know, it's right after Halloween. Everybody's, you know, doing the skull candies and, but what are we really doing? You know, we're honoring, you know, those ancestors that have passed, you know, my husband's grandfather, my grandparents that have passed away. It's that recognition and the traditions. And it was actually really nice when the, the movie came out, Coco, because they kind of, you know, talk about the other Los Muertos. Coco, the Disney movie. Oh, Instagram. that one with the guitar. Uh, yeah. There was a very popular song. I forget what it was. But yeah, mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. Remember me. And that was really Remember nice me. when that yeah. movie came came out because it it really honored the, you know, the day. And Dia de los Muertos is more, you know, it's not just for Mexicans. A lot of Latinos from different places celebrate Dia de los Muertos. It's very important. Got it, got it, got it. And, uh, you know, just talking again about Mexican culture, like I remember when like I used to, was it 2012 when the Mayan calendar, there was this thing about the world ending. Oh uh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> the Mayan yeah, yeah, calendar. Yeah. I actually thought the Mayans were European because I think back then I was still home in Nigeria and they were like, oh, the world's going to end in 2012, 12, 12, 12. And for some reason, I never knew like the Mayans were associated with like, like Mexico and this whole rich culture, like the Aztecs, the pyramids. I never knew there were pyramids in Mexico as well. Oh, yeah. Like, I've been there. They're beautiful. Yeah, that's another part of history. Like there, there are some parts of the pyramids where if you like make a sound, it like travels up. The pyramid, like I've seen videos like that, just so rich in culture, like and it's very rich to visit. Yeah. Oh my god, I recommend going to the pyramids. I went in 2000, 2000 or two thousand one. I went with my family, and it was absolutely amazing to see the pyramids. It's just it's crazy. And the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas weren't part of Mexico, but they were like, um, you know, in a similar type of indigenous community that kind of had the same things going on around the same time, the calendars, um, establishing the number zero, the counting. I mean, if you really look at everything they develop, it's, it's absolutely amazing. The Incas, Aztecs, Mayans, absolutely amazing civilizations. Yeah. And most of that culture, like, uh, let me not say most, but a bulk of that, those cultures have been preserved. I want to say like over time, I don't know particularly about the Mayans and the Aztecs, but just like Hispanic culture in general, the way, like it's so amazing to see Hispanic people, like, you know, stay true to their culture and pass it down kind of like from generation to generation. Cause a lot of people don't know how big and powerful Mexico was like places like Texas or Te- Texas or California or different things were part of Mexico yes, up until were. like the late 1800s when the U.S. started to annex some of the states into the, the, the Federation of the U.S. or the Republic of Texas or whatnot. But it's so rich in culture. Well, what is one thing you would like people to kind of like take away from this interview about like the Mexican people, the Hispanic culture, and maybe, you know, go back to maybe do more research on or to be wary of when they're interacting with Mexican people, just kind of like a takeaway for non-Hispanic people who are listening to this episode. Um, I think the the takeaway would be there's a lot of tourism going into Mexico. I would say for tourists going into Mexico, go in there, explore, you know, meet the people, the culture, the colors, taste the food. It's amazing. There's a lot of indigenous communities still in Mexico that sell a lot of their like, you know, their art and all that stuff. But to respect it, you know, there's a lot of tourism. And with that comes 
you know, the ecosystem in Mexico, if you look at a lot of the beaches, they're like the, the corals are like completely destroyed. Um, over oh, what's the name of that beautiful beach? Is it Acapulco or what's the... Yeah, Acapulco. Acapulco, yeah. That, that's yeah. Uh, like an amazing... Yeah, do your research before you go what city you're going to, because obviously I'm not trying to like scare off people, but there is, you know, cartels and all that kind of stuff. Just like do your research of where you're going. And I think a lot of I people mean, go a, to like Mexico City or go to, uh, what, where's the place they go to spring break again? Um, uh, I've never been. Uh, I know where you're talking about. Um, it's a popular thing. Oh my but, God, I can't think. Of, no, it's not Cancun. Oh my God, I can't think. Yeah, of I, it. I think it's Cancun. Yeah, right? Is it Cancun? I think so, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds, that, that's top of mind. That kind of like sounds yeah. really familiar, yeah. But anyway, yeah, thank you so much like, uh, of course. for coming on the podcast. Like if people want to reach out to you, if people want to like interact with you, uh, how can they get across to you? Um, I would say probably, I'm not very um, active on social media. I would say probably my Instagram. And I, honestly, I don't even know what my handle is. I'm not even joking. That's how like much I'm not on social media, but um yeah. So my so, my so you Instagram. Don't, you, don't, you don't watch TV a lot. You're not on social media. What you do is kind of like to unwind and stuff. Well, I would run, but like I said, I'm recovering from my stress fracture. So honestly, read. I do a lot of reading. Um, yeah, I do a lot of reading. That's my favorite thing to do is read. But yes. my Instagram is Betita. Which, by the way, the backstory to that is my obviously my name's Elizabeth. Everyone calls me Liz, but my parents call me Betita. Betita. Yeah. Is that, is that, that's a common thing, right? In Mexico, like, oh my like, God, yes. like, a, like a shorty, Beto, Betita. Yeah. Like a, uh-huh. So my little sister's shorty because she's like five foot. So she's super tiny. So yes, you're right. Nicknames is a big thing. And sometimes they'll give you the most horrible nicknames that will stick with you your whole life. What, what do you consider a horrible nickname? I don't know. Like maybe you were like a chubby kid and then it was cute, like gordita, but like, you don't want to be an adult and like people calling you gordita. Like at least I would, you know, like call me by my name. But anyways, yeah, they used to call me Betita. So it's Betita, B-E-T-I-T-A underscore Gomez. Betita Gomez. Thank you yeah. so much, Elizabeth of course. Gomez, for being on the episode. Telling us Thank you for having about. me. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, as usual, this is like uh, part of our series for Hispanic Heritage Month. I will be publishing a new episode throughout the month of October. Uh, hopefully people get to learn more about the Hispanic culture and reach out to our brothers and sisters in that part of the world. Um, if you guys want to reach out to Culture Class Podcast, you can go to our website. It's cultureclasspodcast.com. We have a new voicemail feature on the website where, you know, if you don't, you know, don't want to send us emails or, you know, follow us on social media, you can just drop a voicemail on our podcast. And, you know, we can edit that, chop it up, put it in the episode. You can, like, ask a question, shout us out, and we can edit that, put it in the episode so you can hear it yourself. So, all right, guys, till next time, stay blessed and be well.